The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com slash events where you can get your tickets. It's Friday, September the 25th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Before we begin, a reminder that if you'd like to support this podcast and indeed all the journalism which we do at the Irish Times, you can go to irishtimes.com inside and sign up for unlimited access there. Using that address helps us in our never-ending efforts to make the podcasts even better. And indeed, if you are a podcast listener, you might be particularly interested in our current offer of a free pair of Sennheiser wireless headphones, which you'll get if you purchase a premium weekend or complete subscription. All the information is at irishtimes.com slash inside. Now, I have long been an admirer of the writing of Anne Applebaum, in particular her book Gulag A History, and also Iron Curtain, The Crushing of Eastern Europe 1945 to 1956. Both of them, I feel, broadened my understanding of 20th century European history and its consequences. But she is not just a historian, she has been a working journalist for three decades, working for a range of publications in Central and Eastern Europe, the United Kingdom, and in the United States, where she's currently a staff writer with the Atlantic. She has also done a lot of work in recent years on the rise of disinformation and illiberalism. Her new book, Twilight of Democracy, draws on her own personal experiences of living and working closely with people whom she once considered political allies on the centre-right, but who subsequently embraced the new nativist authoritarianism exemplified by the likes of the Law and Justice Party in Poland, Fidesz in Hungary and Trump's Republican Party in America. She is going to be taking part in an online discussion next week with Pascal Donoghue as part of the Dublin Festival of History, and I'm delighted to say she joins me now. And you're very welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Twilight of Democracy is very different from your previous work in that I suppose it addresses similar themes, but it's very much rooted in your own personal story and your relationships with a number of people, some of whom you once regarded as very close friends, I suppose, but not necessarily anymore. It it might be best to start off, as the book does, with your own very evocative description of a party which you hosted in the winter of 1999. What were you doing in Poland at that time and who was at that party? (laughs) Um, First of all, to be clear, it's not a book about parties. I'm not an amazing hostess. That's not the that's not the um, that's not the purpose of writing about it. Um, The party is a metaphor, really, for groups of friends or alliances of acquaintances and people, people that we know. Um, I was living in Poland. Um, I I have actually I'm in Poland right now and I have been living in Poland on and off since 1989. Um, I was a freelance journalist here in the late 80s and early 90s. Um, I'm, my husband is Polish. He's a Polish politician. Um, in 1999, he was a kind of junior minister in, in a then center-right Polish government. Later on, he became foreign minister. Um, and the party was the you know, party that we gave 10 years after the fall of communism. Um, as I say, we, we, we had other members of, of that government, not even members of the government, kind of lower level people in politics came, people in journalism came, nobody particularly famous at that time um, or well known. Uh, a few friends of mine came from London, a few came from the US. Um, and the, the point about the party was that it was a moment when I felt like we were, everyone there was on the same side, that we were all 
Um, we were all, it was mostly people from, you could roughly call the Polish right. It was called the right, meaning anti-communists as opposed to former communists. Um, it was people who aspired to, um, for, for Poland to integrate with Europe, for Poland to join NATO, um, people who were dedicated and devoted to building democracy in Poland, again, either as journalists or as intellectuals or sometimes in politics. Um, and the mood of the party reflected that, and it was a very optimistic moment um, in time. And when I reflected back on it nearly two decades later, I realized that there were a lot of people who were there at the time who I, as you say, don't speak to anymore. And a lot of people at the party who don't speak to other people at the party. And the reasons are not personal. Um, the reasons are political because the, the rough um, unity of that group um, has is gone and has been replaced by a very deep divide, which has left people on opposite sides of what feels now like an unbridgeable political chasm. Um, and the point of the book was to explain how that happened, not only in Poland, but also in other countries, because I have felt and experienced a version of that elsewhere too, um, both personally in the UK, where you know my friends fell on both sides of the Brexit debate, um, in the US where people who I know inside what used to be the, the American right have fallen on both sides of, of Trump. Some hate him, some, some are still supporting him. Um, and then I, through my reporting elsewhere in Europe, I can see the same thing happening in Spain. I can see it in other countries as well. And so, you know, the question is, what was the explanation for that? Why did this happen now? Um, I, I went back and I did do some history, so to speak, for the book. I went and read about other moments in history when the same kind of thing had happened. I spent a lot of time reading about the Dreyfus trial in France, which was a moment when the French political class, as it then was, also divided very sharply. Um, but a lot of the book is subjective. Um, it's my memories of people. It's I've gone back and talked to some of them. I've done reporting on some of them. Um, and it's 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 subjective. It's my point of view. It's not an, a piece of objective history. It's rather my view on something that I lived through. Um, and that's why it's written a little bit differently from my history books, which are you know, long and include archival research and show you know history from many sides and you know try try and try and attain some kind of objectivity. This book doesn't pretend to be that. It's not a it's not an objective history of the last thirty years. It doesn't cover every subject. It just is focused on this issue, what happened to the journalists, intellectuals, um, politicians uh, on the right in these countries? Why did some become much more radical? And uh, it should be said that, I mean, obviously there's been a lot of talking and writing about the rise of, you know, new authoritarianism of the right in particular over the last few years. It, but this is not about the sort of the underlying demographics, the unemployed steel miners in Ohio or other people disenfranchised by by changes in globalization. These people, your friends and the people you talk to in the book, they're all in one way or another members of political and and intellectual elites. And I'm it seems to me that there's a number of causes you ascribe to their um, transition to a new form of, of right-wing politics. Opportunism in some cases. Uh, in some cases, maybe deeply held beliefs which intensified further, a kind of a nostalgia for the past and a increasing discomfort with uh, with modernity. And in some cases, perhaps those beliefs were always there. They were buried under the surface. Yes. I mean, just to be clear, I, the book doesn't have a single thesis. I, it's it's an annoying book in some ways for people who do podcasts because it doesn't have a one kind of thundering conclusion. Um, instead, it looks at 
different reasons that people had to become disillusioned either with politics or with their countries or in some cases with their careers um, and to and to seek a and to seek a different path. Um, and in, in some cases, I give, you know, emphasize one set of reasons in, in, in some another, but, you know, human beings are complicated and they have multiple, um, multiple reasons, multiple sets of motivations. I mean, they don't, they don't necessarily all, um, aren't all moved by exactly the same thing um, at the same time. But, but I do want to underline something that you said in your, in your question, which is that these are all elites. And so, explaining their dissatisfaction with democracy in some cases or their dissatisfaction with the political status quo, you can't say, well, it's because they're impoverished or because of the financial crisis or because they lost their job to an immigrant or whatever are the cliche reasons that people give. I mean, these are people who are, you know, they have nice houses and good educations and they can travel places and they you know, they don't belong to a cliche version of whatever you think the right is supposed to look like. Um, and therefore, I thought that they needed, you know, it needs a more complex and a more nuanced explanation for why they feel what they feel. Um, I would say there is one thing that probably unifies most of them, which is some sense of disappointment or 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 deep pessimism, um, uh, either about their country um, or about their society or about their political systems for for, for whatever reason, they are convinced that it no longer works. And this radical disappointment and radical pessimism leads people to forms of radical extremism. Because if, if, if the country is degenerate and it is ending and the civilization as we know it is over, then yes, you need, a, you need some radical change in order to put that right. And that is the that is actually the the idea, the conclusion that has set people on the path both to right wing and to left wing radicalism in the past. The book is particularly interesting to me, perhaps because I'm Irish and it's there are next door neighbours about your experiences in in England in the 1990s when you were a journalist, uh, you were deputy editor of the of the Spectator at some point, which is one of the chief organs of I suppose British conservative thinking, and you wrote for the the Telegraph and and other newspapers. You knew a lot of people, including uh, Boris Johnson, and uh, that's quite entertaining as well as interesting. Your your encounters with him, but I think maybe what goes more to the core of things is you write about the journalist Simon Heffer and the historian Roger Scruton, who who sort of epitomise what you're talking about there. This kind of absolute sense of disgust with modernity and the modern world and modern politics and what's happening to England. And that curdles almost into a kind of a nihilism at some point, it seems to me. So, I, you know, they're, 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 they're all different people. Roger, Roger Scruton, who was a philosopher, um, was not a nihilist, but he was in great despair about what he thought was the death of England. Um, one of the passages that I quote in the book he talks about um, writing an elegy for my country. In other words, England, as we once knew it, is dead. You know, and that's a very, you know, if you think about it, a very dramatic thing to say. Um, and so he was in a kind of permanent despair about England um, and the loss of what he saw as cr- crucial and, um, you, know, um, re- you know, really important elements of Englishness and English way of life that he thought was disappearing. And, and, you know, as I've said, you know, if you feel that way, which he really did, I mean, he was not, I should say, not a political figure at all. He didn't have any direct role in politics, but he did inspire a lot of people. A lot of people read his work, a lot of people who are in, you know, who are, who are in politics. 
And people were inspired by that feeling to say, well, if England is dead, then, you know, we need to revive it and we need to do something really dramatic. Um, and there were different formula for, for what that might be. But one of the formulas was Brexit. You know, we will we will rescue England from from be you know from becoming just another ordinary European country run by this set of rules that we, you know, we don't get to determine our all by ourselves. And we will we will save England and we will preserve its specialness in the way that we remember it and maybe try and resurrect it. And he did inspire people to think in those kinds of categories. Is there not a sort of paradox there, though? Because it seems to me that the destruction of that sort of England had less to do with the EU um, and probably more to do with the sort of market market forces which were released by Margaret Thatcher's governments in the in the nineteen eighties in terms of the the transformation of the landscape and the economy and the society of of the United Kingdom and of England. Is, is there not a sort of paradox at the heart of conservatism there? Oh, I mean, I don't think the EU had anything to do with any of it. I mean, the, the EU was a um, you know, I don't want to say it's a conspiracy theory because that's actually not right. But, you know, the EU simply became a symbol for everything else that everybody didn't like. Um, and, you know, you can point to market reforms, you can point to modernity, you can point to shifts in the nature of consumption, you can point to, you know, the agricultural revolution, which changed the way people use landscape and use, use the countryside. I mean, all those, that was one of the things that bothered Roger a lot. Um, you know, you can point to arch- changes in architecture and other, you know, technology. You can point to changes in information technology. I mean, there were a lot of reasons why England changed in the way it did, just like there are a lot of reasons or many societies. And, and I think the the EU, to the extent that it played any role, you know, was extremely minimal. I mean, it wasn't a, at all a determining factor, but the EU was a useful target. And it was a, I mean, this is why the Brexit campaign was, um, I mean, I could see this unfolding at the time. And the Brexit campaign was really was directed at people who were dissatisfied about anything in their societies. Um, and the famous Facebook advertising um, that was done for the campaign did this. So it targeted animal lovers and said, you know, if we leave the EU, you know, we will take better care of animals. And it targeted you know, people, you know, you know, found people in society who were dissatisfied with whatever and and said, if we leave the EU, that will be fixed. Um, and of course, it wasn't true. Um, and of course, much of it was, you know, was was exaggerated. Um, I mean, and there's almost nothing, even, even today, if you ask the Brexiteers, okay, the minute you are free, you know, you are released from the EU, what is it that you will do that you couldn't have done before? And you can't almost you know, I have never gotten any of them to answer it. What is it that they will now be able to do that was hitherto impossible? I mean, the answer is almost nothing. I mean, if they want more, you know, Michael Gove has talked about having more stringent environmental laws. Nobody was stopping them. You know, too many foreigners live in London. You know, London property prices are too high. Well, that's not because of the EU. You know, that was a, that's a decision that was that was made to attract international capital and even kleptocratic capital to London. And to let people use the London housing market like a Swiss bank accounts and buy anonymous property there, investment property. I mean, that has nothing to do with Europe, but you know, but those, are, but those are the things that have that have bothered people, um, and they could have been changed before the EU, you know, before the UK left the EU. But, um, but, but it became a um, it became a catch-all explanation and a catch-all cure for whatever it was that people didn't like about modernity. 
Brexit is is by definition a very British sort of a phenomenon. And one of the things I, I, I love about the book is, you know, you go to Madrid, you talk to the leader of the Vox Party there, which has been doing very well over the last couple of years. Um, you're in Budapest, you talk to some of the people who are really the staunchest supporters of, of Viktor Orban's uh, movement there. And even though there are in there's there's a lot of individuality in the way these things play out in the different countries which which you go to. There's a, there are also there are parallels and there are similarities. And I like the fact that you don't draw the obvious parallels, which I think too many people do with the interwar period with the 1920s and 1930s, because I think there's good reasons to be to be careful of those. But you do you mentioned the Dreyfus affair. You do look back to the late 19th century and I suppose what might be called the sort of reactionary movements at that time, both in arts and culture and in politics which culminated in in the Dreyfus affair. And in a way, what I'm looking at here with reactionary Catholicism uh, in an alliance with a kind of suspicion of the state and of modernity, it does feel quite a bit like the 1880s or the 1890s. Yes. Um, you know, I, I didn't avoid the 1930s altogether. I mean, I write about Julian Benda, who was a French writer, you know, whose most famous book was published in the 1920s and who talked about the rise of both fascism and, and Soviet communism. Um, and there are a few other illusions, but you're right. I did look at other periods and other moments. Um, you know, 19th century France and 19th century Germany are both very interesting because they are um, they are moments when you have a very fast speed of change. You know, fast industrialization. Um, a lot of people move from the countryside to the cities. Um, you know, it's another moment like the present when people find themselves, look at their children and feel that their children have become something very different what, from what they are, which is, which I increasingly think is a is a thing that causes distress. It makes people uncomfortable when they feel like their children live in a different world than, than the one that they knew. Um, and this is when you begin to have big arguments in both Germany and France about the nature of the nation. Um, and when you look closely at the Dreyfus Argument, and for those who don't know, this was a this was started as a as a, an accusation of a member of the French army and an officer in the army that he had committed treason and he'd been selling plans to the to the Germans who were then the then and and remained for a long time the main enemy of the French, um, and he was accused and as it and this was Alfred Dreyfus and he he was Jewish and. Um, in fact, the case against him was completely it was it was a you know it was a confabulation. It wasn't true. They they made up evidence and so on. Um, and in fact, it emerged later on that somebody else was guilty of having done another officer. Um, but the argument about Dreyfus about whether he was guilty or not really divided France, and it divided France in a very fascinating and rather modern way into. Those people who thought that, in, who believed in a kind of mystic, um, you know, holistic, I don't know, um, ancestral idea of France in which we all must support the army in whatever it says because we owe our loyalty to the army. And this Jewish foreigner, whether or not he's guilty, somehow deserves to take the plane because he's an outsider. And we who believe in, in ancient France, you know, going back to Joan of Arc, you know, must stick together. And then that was opposed by a different group of people who also would have described themselves as patriots, but who believed in justice. You know, the purpose of the state is not to evoke mystic feelings of nationhood. The purpose of the state is to be just and to treat all citizens the same way, according to the same set of 
neutrally written, you know, apolitical rules. And therefore, the unfair treatment of Dreyfus must be somehow, you know, must be reversed and he must receive recompense and, 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 you know, and justice must, must triumph. And this battle, you know, so in the, and, and the, in the short term, the anti-Dreyfus group won. Dreyfus was sentenced. He 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 was sent into a terrible prison, actually, in in um, off the coast of South America, and he and it, you know lived on in Devil's Island. And anyway, but eventually, eventually, the the mood turned. He was brought home. He was he was pardoned. Uh, many of the other people who'd been jailed or who had whose careers had suffered because of supporting him also found that their fortunes reversed um and there was a different mood and 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 the, and the sort of the people who believed in the republic and and justice and uh and this um you know modern version of france seemed to win um until the end of the 1930s when they lost again um and one of the things that happens during the occupation of france is that this older kind of definition of Frenchness comes back. And literally some of the people who were part of the anti-Dreyfusard movement play roles then later on in the Vichy government. Um, and, and, you know, and then after, of course, after the war, you have a reversal again. So you can look at French history over the last, I mean, I'm being extremely simplistic here and I'm, I'm cutting corners, but you can look at it over the last 100 years, 150 years, as, a, as this extended argument about what kind of nation are we. Um, and then if you look at other nations, you can see very similar kinds of arguments being had in other places. You know, are we, you know, how do you define who we are? Um, are we citizens and we are all treated equally by the law? Are we all part of some ethnic cultural family and we're linked by blood and people who aren't linked to our blood can't be part of our nation? Um, so how do we think of ourselves and how do we define ourselves? Um, and that's the, you know, and that, that argument runs through a lot of 20th century politics and actually a lot of contemporary politics as well. And that was the, that was the parallel, that was the, you know, the interest that I found in the Dreyfus trial. And of course, then the other point about the Dreyfus trial is that it's a moment when everybody stops speaking to each other and they, you know, people who used to go to the same parties don't go to the same parties anymore. And there's some very funny descriptions, even from Proust's very famous long novel in which he talks about the shifts of alliances that take place in Paris during the direct trial and afterwards, um, as people take sides one way or the other and do or don't go to one another's houses. Um, and that just seemed to me very contemporary. The other part of it strikes me listening to you there, uh, as well as, you know, the question of what the nation is, is I think that crops up from time to time in your book is a certain kind of reactionary Catholicism. And, you know, Steve Bannon has his friends in certain corners of the Vatican. Um, there, uh, Laura Ingram, who you mentioned, is converted to Catholicism. She's a Fox News star and a, and a Trump world defender, I, I suppose. And I suppose as an Irish person, Ireland and Poland were traditionally seen as the two most Catholic countries in Ireland and in Europe, rather. I'm not sure if that's still the case. But as an Irish person, one of the things that's striking to me looking at the Polish situation is the willingness of senior clerics like the Archbishop of Krakow or other priests or Catholic radio stations to align themselves so closely with views, ultranationalist and sometimes anti-Semitic views. Um, yes. I mean, very sadly, actually, it's, a, it's one of the great tragedies of contemporary Poland um, that the Polish Catholic Church has gone that way, because I'm, I'm not sure that it was always like that. And it's not one. Even, even now, there are a lot of priests and others 
um, connected to the church who are unhappy about the direction that it's gone. Um, but, you know, I mean, Catholicism is like, you know, it's like, you know, it's, it's, um, you know, like many other ideologies, you know, you can, you can find in it a, a reactionary version and you can find a liberal version. In other words, it seems to be perfectly plausible to be, you know, a liberal modern Catholic who, who has found ways of living with, you know, living with the, the rules in the, in the present day and adjusting to the fact that societies are more complex than they used to be. And, or you can find a very orthodox way to see the world, you know, in, in the same documents and in the same, you know, theology. Um, you know, unfortunately, what's happened to the Polish Catholic Church is that it has become politicized. So it is now literally the province of one political party and not of others, um, which is, I think, very dangerous for it because, you know, there's there's now, for example, a generation of young people who will never go to church because um, they associate the church with one kind of politics. You know, it's not seen as a you know, a, a, you know, as it used to be an institution that unites the nation, it's seen as a partisan institution that is speaks for one part of the nation and not the other. Um, even though there are people in the other part who used to consider themselves Catholics or maybe even still do, but just don't want anything to do with the, the church anymore. Um, so, you know, and, and, and because the church sees it that way, sees itself that way and has decided to play that role, um, you know, I think it it loses out in the long term, though maybe, you know, in the short term, it thinks it's making gains by insinuating itself into one political party, which will then defend its interests and 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 promote its causes. I mean, the highest stakes contest, obviously, in relation to these issues right now is the U.S. presidential election as we as we enter its its final month. I'm 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 interested looking at what's happening there by people who I think would share to some extent your political philosophy, people who were former members of the Republican Party who have become never Trumpers, organisations like the Lincoln Project, and also by some writers and thinkers and people who were previously senior operatives in the party who have kind of come out with sackcloth and ashes and have said not only that they reject Trump, but they reject many of the things which they themselves were involved in over the last couple of decades, um, that many of them were actually sowed the seeds for what is being reaped now with Trumpism. What do you think of that as somebody who would have shared some of those political beliefs? So, you know, I find that to be a kind of cop-out. You know, if you look back on the history of the Republican Party in the United States, you can find a lot of things 20 years ago that could have developed one way or the other. Um, you know, the, the Republican Party, just like most political parties, but especially American political parties, because they're so big and because they because of the first-past-the-post system, they require the making of coalitions have all kinds of people in them for all kinds of reasons. I mean, look at look at the first term of George W. Bush. What was his initial priority? What was he thinking about when he first became president? He was thinking about immigration reform. And he was thinking about, and part of the reason was a cold political calculation that the Republican Party made that we want to also become the party of Hispanics. Um, and they were made a huge outreach to Hispanics during the election. Um, his first, if I recall, I think I'm correct in saying that his first foreign visit was to Mexico. Um, he had a special, you know, relationship with the then president of Mexico, um, and that was that was the way his administration was going. 
it was co- all completely derailed by 9-11, which then led to the recon- you know, rethinking of borders. You know, we need much more border screening rather than less and so on. Um, and led to and led him in a completely different direction from, from the one that was planned. But you know, you can imagine an alternative universe, you know, in which the Republican Party becomes a big national multicultural party in which um, you know in which Hispanics play a greater and greater role and in which um, Hispanic Americans and which and and you know in which people are happily bilingual you know and which you know has has an enormous amount of appeal to a whole generations of new immigrants in America and that that was one strand and one set of ideas that was in the party um, in 2001. Um, that strand lost, and instead, you know, another part of the party, tri- its ideas triumphed and began to spread. And, and you know, like so, but but I wouldn't, but but I think going back and looking at what was going on 20 years ago and claiming that you could then predict the present from what was going on in the past, I think first of all misunderstands how history works, um, but also misunderstands the nature the broad nature of these political coalitions and the the fact that they could have gone in many other directions. So you don't think that the the drift to nativism, that the seeds of that can be seen in things like Nixon's Southern strategy, some of the campaigns in by 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 Ronald Reagan in the nineteen eighties and 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 then of course things much closer to home like the Tea Party and, and other things. Of course you can see that. I mean that's not that's my I mean of course you can see that and you can see you know, older versions of that in America in the 1920s and 30s, you know, you can look at the campaign of George Wallace, you can look at all kinds of, you know, you can, you you could see those sentiments in, in other places um, from the very beginning. But my point is that you can, you can also find their opposite. Um, and the fact, the fact is that the nativists won and their vision of the world triumphed, at least inside the Republican Party. Um, or, um, you know, and so therefore it looks to us like it was inevitable that they would win and that all these things that happened earlier lead automatically up to this point. But I've just I've spent enough time writing history and thinking about trying to see the world from the perspective of people in the past. And I'm I'm just arguing that there was a there was another way. There were other things that were going on in the party 20 years ago and in the conservative movement. And, you know, those ideas also could have won, but they didn't. They lost. Um, so I, I, I just, I just, I just, re- I reject any any idea that there was something inevitable about the present, or that there's something inevitable about the future. But we we do not know right now what the world will look like 20 years ago. It is neither inevitable that American democracy will die, nor is it inevitable that it will survive. For example, I'm very glad you said that because the next thing I was going to ask you, the f- f- final question, really, is that um, there isn't a question mark on the title. It's called "Twilight of Democracy" with a, without a question mark, and it is, um, I think, very deliberately doesn't offer, you know, prescriptions um, for getting out of this. It, it offers some hope for it, but it also has. I suppose a kind of a widescreen version of this where you sort of pull back the lens and you look at human history and you say, you know, democracy has only existed for a very short time in human history. Perhaps our our um comfortable expectations that it would just continue unchecked into the future uh, are about to be proved wrong. Maybe, maybe they are. I mean, you know, look, I, I mean the, the founding fathers when they were designing the American Constitution were reading books about ancient Greece and Rome, which are, you know, stories of democracy in the ancient period, when, of course, all of those democracies failed. Um, and one of the things they had in their head was, was, was the failure, for example, of the Roman Republic. And one of the reasons why the U.S. Constitution was designed the way it was, some of which is causing us trouble now, 
um, is because they were they were trying to create the idea of separation of powers. They were trying to bake that into the system so that we wouldn't end up with a tyrant or with a with a demagogue um, running the country. Um, um, you know that they understood perfectly well that democracy can fail. You know they were they were afraid it would fail. Um, but we seem to have somehow forgotten that it could fail, and we think it's inevitable that it will always succeed. And I think that feeling of inevitability has led us to complacency, and we have ignored uh, the fact that we need some deeper form to be made to democracy, and we've ignored, um, we, we, we're, we've missed some warning signs and warning signals um, that, you know, that should have told us that we are in trouble and that we need to think harder about how to make our political systems work for the for the 21st century. Because it's um, there are reasons for optimism. The situation in Poland where the book starts, um, it's 50-50 really between the two sides of this particular coin, isn't it? And the same is true in the United States. Uh, if people get out and vote, they can make a difference. Yes, they can, they can make a difference. Voting makes a difference. Um, civic engagement makes a difference, whether you work for a political party or you work for a you know, a local campaigning movement, or you work on your neighborhood council, you know, all those things add to, can contribute to the quality of your democracy and therefore the quality of your life. And Applebaum, thank you very much indeed for joining us. No, thanks so much for having me. And Twilight of Democracy is published by Penguin Random House. And Applebaum will be taking part in an online conversation with Pascal Donoghue on Saturday, October the 3rd, as part of the Dublin Festival of History. The festival is a Dublin City Council event that runs online until Sunday, October the 4th. Uh, all these events are free and booking is available at dublinfestivalofhistory.ie and I would highly recommend checking it out. As always, thanks to our producer, Declan Conlon, and our engineer, JJ Vernon. If you want to get in touch with us, we're always pleased to hear from you. Just email us at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. But until the next time, thanks very much indeed for listening. 